Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. And we're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. This is episode 137. 137. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, friend and co-host Ryan Ray. Ryan, we're here today to talk about the ExxonMobil case with our good friend, Rob George. He's a lawyer interested in oil and gas, and he's here to kind of break down that case and uh, go over that with us. Yeah, yeah, that's all true. That's all true. He is the first witness I think we've had on the show that saw how bad of a fisherman you were and can testify to that. So he was, he, he was one, I think he won the first trip with us when you didn't catch a single fish, if I remember correctly. So, um, Rob, if you want to go, on, go ahead and verify that. And then you can talk about ExxonMobil because, I mean, I don't think you caught anything did that you, day. Did you so, catch a fish that time? Yes, Ryan? I did. Yes, I caught many fish. Oh, not but, many Rob, fish. Rob, it's good to see you again. I hope you're doing well. Um, but go ahead. Gentlemen, it's great to be back on the show. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will verify that Ryan caught more fish than the rest of us. Uh, I think memories have faded. Well, Steve, Steve yeah, actually caught the most, I think. Steve uh, caught the most. Yeah, that's right. Credit to Steve, of course. Yeah. Those of us on the show, um, yes. Ryan, I think Ryan foul hooked about four fish. <laughs> and then I think, I'm pretty sure that the captain caught a couple of fish and handed his Snoopy rod to Ryan really quick for the <laughs> reeling in part. Um, but as far as what, how many Josh and I caught, you know, that I think that's just kind of lost to history. <laughs> it, you know, it was somewhere more than zero and less Less than 300, I think. Yeah. But that's very that, Less than two, I think, would be a fair assessment. I mean, look, who was really counting that day? We were just out there to have a good time, to, social, to support Steve and his fishing habit, uh, you know, to get him through some challenging fishing times and uh, to otherwise make good on the commitment that the uh, shop and the pros had to you guys on the podcast. Yeah, and he called, he called like the, was the Grand Slam or whatever that day. He yeah, called like he called four a flounder different species or something. Yeah, so he, he mean, really laid it to us. Didn't he tell us that he had like never been fishing at the coast or something? something and yeah. He sent us all these pictures of him fishing like in the backwater behind his house. Yeah, and, some ditch or something he was sending right? pictures of. He he kind yeah. of, uh, what do they call it? They uh, blackballed you or uh, when they uh, when you're playing pool. Sandbagged you, right? Sandbagged you. Yeah he, yeah, he he duped us for sure. So anyways, thank you for coming on to break down the ExxonMobil case for folks who might have just seen headlines or whatnot. Uh, when did this kind of start? Um, why was this brought? Uh, or who, who brought this uh, case and then kind of where we are at, a, at just kind of a high level? Sure, no problem. So uh, the case really started with um, some shareholders and other interested parties with Exxon in about 2013. Uh, they had come to Exxon and said, hey, how are y'all accounting for the potential cost of additional climate change regulation in the future? So, of course, uh, if we think back to 2013, we're talking about uh, the last legs of the Obama administration and uh, a lot of climate legislation that had been introduced and was going on. And I think the shareholders of probably most major corporations that work in the oil and gas world were probably wondering, and some probably concerned, and other probably less concerned, but certainly thinking about how these corporations are going to account for future climate change legislation because it would have the potential for affecting their um, their cost of goods sold. Their inputs could be taxed more heavily and their outputs could be taxed heavily and it can change their consumer's behavior. So some of these shareholders, they came over to Exxon and they said, hey, how are you guys doing this? And Exxon met with them and came out with a couple of reports based on that. Exxon decided to use for its reporting purposes uh, and not, not SEC type reporting, but just kind of public reporting, what they called a proxy cost of carbon. 
And then they had a different group within Exxon that used a different measuring tool that basically just took in the, as best as they could guesstimate, the greenhouse gas costs. So um, the New York Attorney General believed that these two different costs were being used by Exxon to deceive shareholders. The carbon cost, uh, the proxy cost of carbon, the share, the the Attorney General believed that that was what Exxon was saying to the public. It was going to be this particular cost estimate. But then internally, for their own, for Exxon's own purposes, they were nefariously using this other cost. And so the New York Attorney General brought a lawsuit under um, securities fraud claims, two of which were dropped in the middle of the litigation, or the actual actually dropped in the middle of trial, and then two that went to trial before a judge in New York. And those two that actually got decided by the judge in New York were based on New York um, securities law, which is this particular law is called the Martin Act. And it is very favorable to the enforcers, not to the people that are defending against it. It doesn't require much proof. So the long and short of it is though, the judge sided with Exxon and said that the AG hadn't proved her case. So let me just ask a, a, a question here. Um, when you hear these types of cases, I, I'm reminded of the Ford and Firestone controversy in the 90s where they had all these filling tires, and I'm not sure exactly uh, what came to light, but it, from what I remember correctly, it felt like uh, maybe Firestone more so than Ford, but um, they both had some knowledge of the tire failures, and they weren't maybe act fast enough or whatnot. Um, and, and I know there's some negligence ascribed to that. So it sounds like on some level the the, the debate is about what does Exxon or did Exxon know? How do they look at the data? Do they manipulate the data? Um, and if you look at something like maybe a little bit more high, another high-profile case like the, the the Ford Firestone case, I know you we didn't tell you to prep for this. So I'm kind of asking off the cuff. You can take a different a different type of case that people might be familiar, familiar with. How does someone go about proving? Yes, they did know, or no, they didn't know, or yes, they they used the because you talk about the old joke is you can get a statistic to say whatever you want. So how do you prove that someone um, from a legal standpoint was uh, not using the best information or being negligent or committing fraud? Those are great questions. So the if you think about this case like the Firestone Ford, or you think about it like the tobacco cases, which are when I, when I was looking at articles about uh, this particular case, a lot of the articles reference the tobacco cases, which of course, where the the plaintiffs in those cases, a lot of times were states initially, um, other than individual cases that were just more specific negligence cases. But then the states came in and sued the tobacco companies claiming that the tobacco companies had known for decades about the uh, the cancer-causing agents within their cigarettes and other tobacco products. And I think that's where a lot of the, um, the people that are trying to enforce uh, or impose climate change regulations and liabilities onto the majors, especially the the major oil and gas companies, but onto any kind of manufacturer. I think those those entities and those individuals are really trying to make this like a tobacco case. And the way you would prove that up, to go directly to your question now, Ryan, the way you prove that kind of stuff up is you have to do a massive document dive into the companies. And you're looking for internal memos and you're looking for um, statements made by uh, various leaders in the company, or perhaps warnings from scientists outside the company. You're look, it's a it's a major document kind of case. It's the rare case where you're going to catch uh, some witness from within the company. Kind of, uh, you're going to catch him with some sort of surveillance or something, talking at a an industry conference about it. And, you know, these these kinds of things in the tobacco company. There were internal memos and internal studies and all kinds of other things. You think back to the days of Enron and the pictures of those folks shredding documents late at night. 
Um, a lot of big companies have a lot of history. They have a lot of documents and some of those documents in right or wrong hands, depending on how you look at it, can be turned into pretty significant evidence of wrongdoing. Um, this particular Exxon case, ultimately, as the judge declared in his order, uh, was not about climate change in and of itself. It was really just a securities case. And this seems to be a tactic that uh, Massachusetts is using now, and maybe some other states are going to, maybe they were going to follow suit and now they're not. Well, I guess that remains to be seen. But um, this is kind of one of those end around type lawsuits. And there are also a bunch of nuisance lawsuits filed by counties and cities and states against Exxon and others uh, for alleging that, you know, they've created these nuisances with their, with their emissions and so forth. So there's lots of different kinds of cases. Many of those won't be negligence type cases. Those are going to be harder to prove up because you have to prove individual damages. I'd have to prove that Exxon did something to affect climate change that then directly affected me. And I'd have have doctor or some other expert that says my injuries are directly related to climate change, which is directly caused by Exxon's nefarious activities. So alleged. Right. So let me, um, let me ask you like this then. When I get in my truck and I start up the F-250 that's diesel-powered, mm-hmm. I understand that I am doing something to the environment. Now, I don't actually fully know the ramifications of that. Um, but you could make a very simple case that, that human action impacts the environment. You could argue that's good or bad, but it does impact the environment in some way. Um, how come the, the case couldn't be made that simply that Exxon was impacting the environment? Um, and then if you have something like an oil spill or carbon emissions, it's quite reasonable to presume that it was going to be a negative impact and therefore they're liable. Um, cause, and I'm not saying that's how it should be ruled upon, but it would seem that, on, that it should be almost an easier case to make with someone as large as them because you could make that case on the very individual level. I don't, I'm, not well, saying, I'm not saying a case from the court of law. I'm saying the case from maybe a public, public opinion. So what would be the difference and why does that not work in the court? Well, in, in public opinion, that's certainly what a lot of people are arguing, right? That all of these... Um, all these big major oil companies and other major manufacturers through their manufacturing processes are emitting carbon and other greenhouse gases that are affecting a, an increase in the temperature of the earth, or I think now it's more commonly just referred to as climate change to kind of capture the increases and decreases. And of course, that's probably a discussion y'all have had in the past and will have in the future, um, whether we're warming or cooling or how exactly mankind in general can affect it. But in the court of public opinion, um, all of these companies can be accused of creating climate change because of their processes, right? Uh, on the, in the court of law, though, the, the proof requirement to show that what they did hurt someone else is a bit more of a barrier than you're going to have in the court of public opinion. So you really have to think about from a court, uh, a, a law court or a, a trial perspective, how is someone or some county or some state going to be able to, sp- to prove with some measure of specificity, that what Exxon did, um, in a general sense, just in the in the way that they operate their company, how is what they did the causative agent for the damages that the county is claiming? So, if you look at the like the Exxon Valdez oil spill, that's different than this general Exxon is causing climate change allegation, right? Those are two different concepts. One has direct damages, and maybe. Climate damages from the Valdez spill, but then just the general allegations related to climate change are a lot harder to prove in a court. So, um, 
One of the things that's interested me about the, the Exxon case, or if you're talking about something, you know, take out like a BP oil spill or oil spill, like you said, but mm-hmm. um, can is it is it feasible or a legal argument to make that Exxon could come and say, well, hey, you know, county, state, et cetera, you guys are saying we're calling the climate change. Um, but if we were to shut off access to our power generating resources, people would die. And so we can do that. Um, but but people would die, and then we you'd be suing us saying that we are you know being there would be some kind of uh, negligence lawsuit or something. <coughs> is that is that a case or is that something when they're defending themselves they can actually make the argument that well you guys are accusing of this, but also you're not trying to divert your power resources. Um, you could pass laws, you could do a lot of things to get to keep us from doing what we're doing, uh, but instead you're actually using our products and services every day. I think that's one of Exxon and all the majors' made, uh, biggest marketing campaign opportunities, right, is to make sure that everybody understands that almost everything we every day required some, um, some oil and gas input to make it happen. So from a public policy and public perspective, it's important for these companies to think about those marketing opportunities. But for the for the specific argument, kind of the zero sum argument of if you stop us from being able to do what we do, other people are going to get hurt, people are going to freeze, or people are going to burn up, uh, you know, without any air conditioning and that kind of stuff. That that might have some persuasive uh, persuasive power in certain circles, but I don't know that I would I wouldn't anticipate a major company making that particular zero sum argument. Right? I think they're going to draw it back just a little bit, just to say, hey you guys are coming down really heavy on us and what you're doing is causing the costs of everybody's daily living to increase. You're going to take what is a commodity. Um, you're going to raise prices at Walmart, right? I mean, that's kind of the bottom right. line. You're going to make everything everybody buys more expensive. Yeah. I guess the concern would be is you talk about the climate um, uh, climate change debate and, and the modeling and we can, what, what people don't really understand about this is that you can get the model to say a lot of different things. You know, you can get you can manipulate the data quite easily to get wild results. You know, the Earth is going to freeze over in a day to we're going to bull up in a day, and everything in between there by just slightly tweaking some of these uh, these numbers of the model. Um, so it, it, it seems that if these lawsuits do continue, that um, you you can actually you know present a lot of science on both sides, and ultimately you you could run up against a judge who is not friendly to your argument um, because he could say, well, hey, you know, here's. 300 scientists over the past 15 years who all came up with these relatively same results. You guys ignored this. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know how they. Um, again, we're we're not the lawyers here, so you know, these are may not be uh, uh, relevant legal questions, but they would be fearful questions if I was as, as I am in the industry going, okay, can they actually get the right judge to look at this uh, this external evidence the right way and say, Exxon, yeah, well, you were hiring guys that you knew were going to you know back your case. Sure. And that's certainly going to be one of those things that Exxon and, and its other um, fellow companies are going to keep an eye on, right? They're, they're always going to be nervous about both on the legislative side and on the judicial side, a runaway judge or a runaway legislature. And I think one of the things that often gets lost in the climate change debate is that we're talking about um, issues that affect the entire world. So if a judge were to come down in the US on Exxon, that's only really going to affect what Exxon does in the U.S. Because no, contrary to what some judges may believe about themselves in the U.S., they don't really have international power. And so I think a lot of times the major companies in particular that work internationally, they're, they're always watching the legislatures and the, and the judiciary in each of the countries they operate in. They're trying to make sure that 
they're anticipating any kind of beneficial or or detrimental legislation and jurists that may come into their path and the companies they want to operate in. And so, yeah, certainly there's a there's a possibility of a friendly judge that a friendly judge to those that are complaining about Exxon coming in and and hammering Exxon. And in the U.S., that's why we have the appellate process, so Exxon can hire another cadre of lawyers and take that up on appeal <laughs> and ultimately end up with the nine in D.C., you know? So um, I, yeah, I'm glad you brought the judges because, as you know, we like to discuss legal theory when we're not talking about <laughs> oil and gas. And um, you learned that the hard way in Baffin. But, you know, Josh the other day was pointing out that, um, not in regards to this case, but just in general, that how a judge rules can depend on if it gets sent up to the appellate court or if you get to the Supreme Court, how the Supreme Court rules will depend on how the Supreme Court might interpret that ruling down the line. They start referencing each other. Uh, the judge's ruling in this case, is there anything for future judges to look back on, or is it a case where the judge's ruling is just a kind of a one-off deal and will not set any type of precedent moving forward? Or maybe did he use prior precedent to validate his case or his, his ruling rather? Yeah, so he did He did definitely use precedent in the sense that he looked at other securities cases in New York to interpret the statutes that were um, attempting to be applied against Exxon by the AG in New York. So he followed precedent to that that respect. Is it an appealable case? You know, the judge, when a, when a case is tried to a judge in the similar way it's tried to the jury, the judge becomes the determiner of the credibility of the witnesses and the ultimate arbiter of the facts. So just like a jury would do, they look at a witness and say, I believe you, I don't believe you. The judge does the same thing. And in this case, the judge wrote a 55-page opinion, which is pretty substantial from a trial court judge. That's not the typical size of an order or an opinion from a trial court, ju- trial court judge in a state court. And his, his opinion is very thorough. He talked about each of the witnesses, why they were credible. He actually excoriated the AG's expert witnesses and said they weren't believable, basically. And so and it probably made the AG pretty mad and she probably has her, her appellate law team looking at it. But I don't know that there is a judicial error in here that the New York um, appellate division, which is their intermediate courts, I don't know that there's a, an overturnable portion of this opinion. I think the judge got it, went pretty straightforward and anything else is going to fall within his discretion. So anything that he may have gotten a little bit wrong, so to speak, can fall with his, within his discretion. And that's hard to really reverse on appeal. Um, you mentioned the judge's ruling. Um, why was there no jury? Is this type of case that require a jury? Did Exxon elect to have a judge only? Do we have any reason for why it was a judge and not a jury trial? I don't know. I think a lot of times, and this will just be a general comment, because I don't know if the parties chose not to have a judge or if a judge is not available in New York. I mean, if a jury is not available in New York for this kind of case. But in a general sense, when you get super complicated cases, uh, there is an advantage to the litigants to try it to the judge as opposed to the jury. And in this kind of a case, you're really dealing with a lot of statutory interpretation and applying statutes and that kind of stuff. And when you have a jury, the jury doesn't really get the opportunity to deal with the law. They don't necessarily interpret a statute. The judge will do that and then instruct the jury, right? But in this kind of a case, Ryan, it probably makes sense to try it in front of a judge because you have the same person, you're persuading the same person on the law and the facts, as opposed to trying to persuade the judge on the law and then the jury on the facts. It makes it a a more streamlined and probably more cost-effective presentation. This trial took 12 days, the court says, and had 18 witnesses. So it was a pretty substantial trial considering that it was just at its bare bones, a fraud case. 
And so if we were to look ahead in the future, uh, this complaint that was levied against Exxon in New York, um, will we not, uh, 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 the appeal stuff aside, but Pennsylvania or Colorado, will this deter a state from making this same type of case because of what happened in New York? Or could you see different states try this same type of method to go after uh, you know, an ExxonMobil or someone of the, of the like? Or, or would they go, no, New York kind of worked against this. Uh, you know, a judge wouldn't even let this go to trial. That's a great question. Um, I would say probably other states may try the same kind of litigation. I think Massachusetts has actually filed a very similar lawsuit against um, Exxon in Massachusetts. And I forget if they filed it during the trial or shortly before the trial, but around the same time that this Exxon case went to trial in New York, Massachusetts filed its own. They have a little twist Massachusetts does in their case where they've added a consumer protection statute allegation. And that basically is instead of just alleging securities fraud, they're saying that Exxon went out and deceived the public and that they have enforcement rights, the state has enforcement rights under the consumer protection statutes. It wouldn't surprise me at all to see other states, especially those that have a more left-leaning bent to themselves and probably a more left-leaning judiciary. It wouldn't surprise me if other states took this on, especially at the encouragement of certain interest groups that are you know, always trying to get Exxon or some other major on the hook for climate change. Because there's just a, if you think about it from a, an elected official's perspective, Ryan, um, it's good PR to say that you've sued somebody over climate change, right? That's in, in, a, in a liberal state. In Texas, you're pretty much costing yourself the election. So I think you'll see it happen in another state or two just to get some more test cases out there before um, other tactics are tried. So the Supreme Court disappointed me earlier this year when they ruled, uh, I don't remember if it was against or in favor, but whatever they ruled about the double jeopardy, they basically said that if you're tried at the state level, the feds can come back and try you for the same crime at the federal level. Um, this isn't double jeopardy in the same sense, but I mean, I mean, if you're Exxon, you're, you're sitting there going, good night. You know, every state in the union theoretically could just try me, try me, try me, try me. Is there anything that ExxonMobil or another company could, could look at and do to, um, like, leave the state or, or stuff like that now? Or is the, is the, um, has the seeds been planted where these accusations are already being levied and they can't, they can't fix it moving forward? Is this kind of damage control? So if it's a state-based lawsuit, like let's say, we'll just take Colorado, for example, not to disparage our good friends in Colorado. We love you guys up there. But um, if a state like Colorado decided to bring this, it's going to have to base its allegations on acts that affected Colorado citizens, right? That's the, the underlying jurisdictional requirement for the AG in Colorado to bring this kind of litigation. He can't say or she can't say, hey, Exxon did all these bad fraudulent things and deceived a bunch of shareholders in California that for the Colorado AG to bring it, they're going to have to allege that it was actions against those in Colorado. So to the extent that Exxon can control its representations to individuals that reside in Colorado, then sure, it can kind of work its way out of it. I just think that Exxon has weathered a huge storm here. Um, I don't really think that even if these lawsuits are brought in other states that at least based on the facts of this case in in New York, I don't think that those cases will um, will give Exxon and its lawyers much of a headache. It'll be a nuisance in the sense that they have to spend money to fight it. But these major companies 
litigation is just part of the cost of doing business. You know, they're also getting sued by their subcontractors all the time. And there's all kinds of litigation always going on in these major companies. And they just put it down as a cost of doing business. So that's how you guys make I, a living. Like y'all, 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 y'all need it basically is what you're saying. I, I think that <laughs> there is always need lawyers in someone's life, right? We make uh, everybody's life happier. You make everybody's so life I something. I don't know if happier is how we would describe right. it as the official position of this show, but you guys make everybody's life. You're involved in everybody's life. Um, you know, one of the things, I'm just, this is not necessarily pertaining to ExxonMobil directly, but one of the things Ellen Wald has theorized before on Energy Week is that uh, maybe a year ago, she was talking about the Ramco IPO before they had kind of narrowed in and, you know, gone with it, um, that, that, that she felt that um, companies like Aramco would be less likely to launch on the New York Stock Exchange because of the litigation issues they could come and they could face here in the United States. Um, as just regular good old Americans sitting here, um, is that a is that a is that a is that a viable complaint that you could see uh, Americans potentially lose the ability to invest or or work with foreign entities because you have lawsuits like this, which are um, I know as you say that's part of the cost of doing business, but if that's not if, if you're a Ramco, that's not part of your cost of doing business. So is it a deterrent to come into the United States and to be on the stock exchange or to work here because you do expose yourself to, um, with all due offense to our folks in New York, <laughs> you know these kind of right. uh, these kind of uh, lawsuits. Sure, I, I do think that it's one of those um, one of the costs that all companies consider when they're considering coming into the U.S. It is certainly an effect of being part of the market in the U.S. that you are subject to a different set of regulations and rules. But if you think about it from a major's perspective, they're doing business in so many countries around the world that it's, it is just part of their common everyday business calculations, whether it's worth it, so to speak, to them to go into a foreign country. It does probably deter some companies. Obviously, you notice it didn't deter uh, Saudi Aramco. Um, and I know down here in the Corpus area where I am, they're getting ready to build a giant uh, a giant center along with Exxon and a partnership they have together down here that we're all very excited about. So I think it's going to deter some of the smaller wannabe international type companies. But at the end of the day, Ryan, we are such a great market to raise money in in the US that from a practical perspective, the benefits of being here as a company are going to outweigh the potential litigation exposure or other potential negative consequences for being here. Okay. I'm going to wrap it up with this. I'm going to let you put on your your uh, lawyer hat and kind of nerd out for a second. Give us the the best argument, in your opinion, that was made from Exxon's side and the best argument that was made from the state of New York side and why you think they were the best arguments. Okay. So Exxon's main argument, and I think it was their best one, was that these were forward-looking statements. Effectively, what Exxon said was, our proxy cost of carbon in the year 2030 and the year 2040 is going to be say, 80 tons, uh, $80 a ton of carbon. And then they put all of those beautiful disclaimers that their lawyers wisely stuck in every document they've ever published that says, hey, this is all forward-looking statements, don't rely on it, et cetera, et cetera. So they always had that out. I think that was Exxon's strongest argument to say, first, we didn't do anything wrong here. These are forward-looking statements that we were giving in response to interested shareholders. And no investor in their right mind would be making a decision to invest in Exxon stock today based on forward-looking statements and potential carbon costs in 2030 and 2040. 
I think the AG did an interesting job with arguing that by using one um, one measure publicly and one measure internally, I think she created a little bit of suspicion. Now, the court pretty well blew that out of the water, but her strongest argument being, hey, look, Exxon is saying in 2030 and 2040, using this proxy cost of carbon, here's what we're looking at. But internally, when, we're, when Exxon is actually considering its own investments, we're using a different measurement. And that creates that little bit of suspicion, like, wait a minute, why are they saying one thing in the public and doing one thing in private? And then as, as Rex Tillerson, who testified in the case said, it doesn't make any sense for us to use a cost internally that isn't an accurate cost. And so we're not going to harm ourselves by predicting a bigger cost in the future and making investment decisions on a lower cost now that doesn't make any sense. And I think that's kind of what the judge hung on to um, in making the judge's ruling here, which is this allegation from the AG is kind of on its head. It would make more sense if Exxon was arguing that it'd be a cheaper thing down the road and they're making decisions with a more expensive estimate instead of the way the AG had actually argued it, even though it was a creative argument because it created the suspicion that she needed. At the end of the day, the judge wasn't buying what she was selling. Okay. Is there anything else from this case that you uh, wanted to mention or put out there that maybe we didn't cover for that might be of interest to the listeners um, and that, you know, an ordinary redneck like myself might not uh, be, be clued into? Well, you're no ordinary redneck. Um, I mean, let's keep in mind, you got a, you got a participation trophy for your U S China negotiation skills. (laughs) So I think, I think that's a very important thing to point out. Yeah, Ryan, I'm glad you asked that question. I want to, I want to read one sentence from the opinion that I think we're going to see sort of thrown back at Exxon down the road. And it's, it's, as we were talking a moment ago about the, the tobacco litigation, this idea that what did you know? And when did you know it? So the judge writes, it is undisputed that ExxonMobil recognized more than a decade ago that climate policies and regulations could affect its business by reducing the demand for its products and by increasing the cost of bringing those products to market. So even though this judge wrote a super friendly opinion to Exxon in the case and in the context of the case, he kind of slipped in this uh, little dig that, hey, Exxon's known for a long time that the costs of doing business in a world that is regulating climate change is going to make it more expensive for Exxon to do business. And Exxon has known that for at least a decade. I don't think it would come as any surprise to any of the listeners that Exxon is aware that carbon and other greenhouse gas emission charges are going to affect their cost of doing business. I just found it pretty interesting that a judge who wrote this really friendly opinion to Exxon decided to slip in this little, hey, you guys have known for a long time, dig. So yeah. Careful. Yeah, what's interesting is, you know, I, I I figured someone with a college degree in law school could read properly a foreign diplomatic certificate that I was awarded <laughs> and understand that it wasn't a participation trophy. So, <laughs> listeners, be beware that I'm not sure his comprehension. I mean, doesn't it have might, like a purple ribbon on it? I wow. think it has a purple ribbon on it. No, it does not I'll have, have to a go purple, back and wow. look at it's it. you know. You come on here and you, you you're like this the New York State AG. You just you're just disparaging my character. If I would have known that you'd have been like this, we wouldn't have had you on. That's my that's my story. I'm sticking it to it. <laughs> well, I think you're going to punish Nate for that decision by making him jump in the water. So yes, yes, uh, that, I, think, that, I think the, that's, the punishment that's will fit the crime. Okay. Well, uh, anything else, uh, folks that want to reach to you? I guess LinkedIn might be the best way if they have questions or or, or, or thoughts on this and. Um, or anything else that maybe we, we, we messed out or you want to plug, promote, or anything at this time? Oh, I appreciate that. No, I think LinkedIn is probably the best place to reach out to me. I'm also at Rob G. Texas on Twitter if someone wants to come over there. I'm not overly active, but 
I certainly will respond to any inquiries or any questions or concerns. And I would also say to the listener base, if anyone has a different take on what we've talked about today on this case and what it might mean for the future of Exxon, we'd love to have that discussion with you on Ryan's LinkedIn. So be sure to go out there and follow him and find him. And uh, I'll, I'll dip my toe into that water when I feel like it's safe. But otherwise, Ryan can certainly handle his own for sure. I just, you know, I wasn't going to bring this up, but you have taken a few jabs at me. And let's just, not only did I dominate Josh in fishing, my legal theory debate that night, it was pretty stellar, if I do say so myself. It was pretty stellar. I, I will absolutely 100% back you that when we were having our discussions, you were you were remarkably spot on and accurate in your legal acumen. I just I should have just done this review. I don't know why we had him on now that I think about it. Didn't really add much to value. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Rob, thank you for coming on. <laughs> hope Guys, you... it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Right. I, hope that, I know this is going to come out after Christmas, but I hope you all have a, a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays. Likewise. And then uh, I know we have some other cases that we might uh, hopefully get you on again in the future to discuss. I know you're a busy man, and we do appreciate it. And we will link to everything in the show notes. It was good catching up, buddy. Talk soon. Always fun, man. Always fun. Y'all have a great day. Merry Christmas. Bye-bye. Oh, man. Well, thank goodness for Nate taking care of y'all for sure. He's too See, He's too that's, for my, that's my the liking. kind of support I need. Too right. I mean, I, I didn't even get to say this on the air tonight. If you want to just slightly record this, I just want to commend Ryan on making such a great hire. I mean, you know, that is the ultimate job of a wise CEO. And you, you brought Josh on. And that was a decision. And then, <laughs> and then, and then you brought Nate in. And I mean, my goodness, you're like Scott Morris all of a sudden out there. Oh, my God. I hope you recorded that. I did. Oh, God. No, please. That will go on the show. That, will, that is on the show, sir. No, it was all good, right, guys. man. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. You bet. My pleasure. Y'all have a great and happy Christmas. We'll talk, we'll talk soon. All right. And you. See you guys. And real quick, Josh, we should make a note that Rob was coming on not as a representative of a, the law firm that he works on, but as an independent person just giving his opinion. So right. um, if you do connect with him on LinkedIn and see where he works at, it's not – it wasn't that firm. That's why we didn't say that at the beginning, but we probably yeah. should be clarify. He wasn't coming on as a representative of that law firm like uh, Danny Vu and those guys were. This is more of his just uh, – his two cents on the issue. But we do thank him for that. And, of course um, – you know, all the great things he said about me at the end were, were quite lovely. So, um, despite his not being able to read my participation trophy. I mean, it's not a participation trophy, but you, you know what I mean. You I know don't I mean? know. I feel like we should put a gold star on that thing Okay. Now. All right. We'll talk to you guys later. Yeah, I, I question everything he said so far now. 